What's good, everybody? I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. Last week, bond yields rose to new 16-year highs with the 10-year Treasury yield climbing to around 5%. Yields jumped after the September U.S. retail sales report showed Americans spending way more money than expected. The increase in spending from the prior month was more than twice what economists had predicted. That retail sales report, the latest jobs report, and the rising rate of inflation are all suggesting that the recession calls that had become very popular just a month ago are now played out. Economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal lowered the probability of recession in the next year to below 50% for the first time since the summer of 2022. What's hot now for economists? Worries that the economy may just be too good. Diane Swank, the chief economist at accounting firm KPMG, will join us to talk about that and what investors need to look for in this week's U.S. GDP report. It's expected to be released on Thursday and will tell us just how much the American economy grew from July to September. But we'll start with the earnings report expected this week that we see as the most compelling, Visa. The credit card company is at the heart of a major change happening in the economy. COVID shut down many storefronts and pushed a lot of retailers to do more of their business online. To make online purchases, consumers need plastic. And the habit of paying by card, along with perks like cash back and rewards, have incentivized us to use our cards more. A lot more. U.S. credit card balances reached $1 trillion for the first time ever in August. Visa and MasterCard control 80% of the U.S. credit card network market, according to a bill recently put forward in Congress. The two companies have made a lot of money from the increasing use of credit cards, and their stock prices show it. Over the past year, Visa's stock has outperformed the S&P 500 by more than 9 percentage points. The companies also are generating more revenue from the fees they set that are paid by merchants, or the businesses that accept credit card payments. The fees are around 2 or 3% per transaction, but those add up. In 2012, Visa and MasterCard generated a little under $33 billion from those fees. In 2022, the two companies brought in a little over $93 billion. That nearly three-fold increase was the result of rising credit card usage, but it was also the result of the two companies raising the fees. Those higher fees have set off a showdown between Visa and MasterCard and trade groups like the National Retail Federation that represent business owners. In August, my colleague Angel Ao Young reported that Visa and MasterCard were preparing to raise those fees again. That story stoked the flames. The U.S. Senate even got involved, asking the companies not to raise their fees. MasterCard responded in a blog post by saying Angel's story was untrue. Visa also wrote a blog calling the story, quote, misleading. The Wall Street Journal said then that it stands by our reporting, and it still does. We reached out to MasterCard and Visa and asked if they have raised their fees. There are network fees, which are pocketed by Visa and MasterCard, and interchange fees, fees that go to the bank that issued the card. A spokesperson for Visa said that the overall effective interchange rates on Visa transactions have been flat for the past decade, and that that will remain true after October. He did not respond to a follow-up email asking if that meant the company had not raised its fees. A MasterCard spokesperson told us that the company isn't raising network fees this fall in the U.S. required for the processing of MasterCard transactions and added that the company isn't raising interchange fees in the U.S. this fall and has no plans to do so. 
However, he did say that MasterCard had modified its interchange fees last year and did not say whether the company had added any new fees. But as they say, the proof is in the pudding. Angel's story said fees would rise starting in October. She's checked the data for us, and her reporting shows that the fees have gone up. Those fees are expected to mean that merchants pay an additional $500 million in fees annually. So with Visa expected to deliver its latest earnings report this week, I've got Angel to talk through all of this with me. Angel, these fees have become a pretty big point of contention. The Senate has reintroduced this legislation about credit card fees, the Credit Card Competition Act. The National Retail Federation has launched a public campaign saying these fees are too high, that they hurt American consumers and small businesses. Talk to me about this fight that's going on. The Credit Card Competition Act is a piece of legislation that lawmakers have tried to pass for several years now. Um, The piece of legislation was actually reintroduced this year in both the House and the Senate. And what the legislation would do is it would essentially give businesses the ability to process many Visa and MasterCard credit cards over alternate networks, meaning networks that are not owned uh, by Visa and MasterCard. The cart networks have already seen um, fees be capped in the debit cards because of a similar ruling. So, of course, the card networks are going to be nervous if this legislation passes, because if it passes, that will force them to curb their fees on the credit card networks, which cuts into their own bottom line. I talk to people who are on um, both sides of the issue. The merchants, they say, not only have fees increased for them, you compound that with inflation, it's actually going at a rate that is very unmanageable for most merchants. You talk to the cart networks, they say that any fee increases that they have imposed have gone towards things like preventing fraud, um, securing networks. What I will say is that inflation is a very real factor, and that can impact really both increasing fees as well as the hurt that it's causing businesses. Okay, so with all that in mind, what is it you're going to be looking for in this week's earnings report from Visa? So I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out on the transaction volume. My prediction is that, of course, the transaction volume is only going to go up. I want to see how much it's going to raise um, uh, year over year and compared to the last quarter. I think another thing that I'd like to pay attention to is cross-border payments. Because cross-border payments, it's just a really good proxy for international travel. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea of international travel and whether it's going to stay at its rate or whether it's going to go down, it's just been mentioned a lot in conversations about this potentially being a signal for a slowing down in consumer spending behavior, potentially a sign of recession. I don't really see consumers slowing their spend anytime soon, especially with the holidays coming up. And if consumers aren't spending like they're in the recession period, then that's only going to mean positive for credit card networks like Visa and MasterCard. That was Wall Street Journal reporter Angel Ao Young. Angel also mentioned that more businesses are asking their customers to pay in cash or are passing the credit card fees on to them. I'm not taking sides. I just like to save money. So I'll be paying cash. Up next, I'll talk to KPMG chief economist Diane Swank about why it's such a problem that the U.S. economy is so strong. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. 
and every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Diane Swank is one of the most well-known economists in the business. Back in February 2020, I interviewed Diane for a story I wrote with the headline, Economist Warn Coronavirus Risk Far Worse Than Realized. She was the first economist I spoke to who was willing to talk about the R word when it came to COVID-19, saying out loud that the virus could lead to a recession. A recession was officially declared to have started in February 2020 and ended in April of that year, the shortest but also one of the deepest recessions in U.S. history. It was only weeks ago that lots of folks were talking about the R word again. Economists and market analysts were predicting that a recession could start as early as the end of this year. But then the jobs report happened. The U.S. economy added 336,000 jobs in September. And then there was last week's retail sales report, which showed retail and food services sales for September totaled $705 billion. The increase from August was more than twice what economists had predicted. More people with jobs who are spending more money seems like a good thing for an economy that's built on consumer spending, right? Well, it's not that simple. As has been the case for about a year, and forgive me if you've heard this before, it's all about inflation. Inflation? The thinking goes like this. If people can keep getting jobs, then people keep buying things. If people keep buying things, then companies can keep raising prices. If companies keep raising prices, inflation keeps rising. And that is a problem. So I sat down with Diane Swank to talk about what she's seeing from the data and what this week's third quarter GDP report will tell us. Diane, the report that we're expecting this week, there are worries that economic growth could be too high. So I want you to just talk me through that. How could it be that there's too much growth or that GDP is too high? We thought would be the Fed's hardest mile in terms of the marathon they're fighting against inflation has morphed into a relay race in the labor market where what were the leading sectors coming out of the pandemic, the most interest rate sensitive sectors, the ones that benefited the most from ultra low rates, have handed off the baton to sectors that are less interest rate sensitive, much more concentrated. But with mm-hmm. the, you know, there's two things going on about growth being sort of too strong. You want strong growth. And it's happened on the heels of cooling inflation, with inflation cooling more rapidly than wages and finally restoring purchasing power. That's all good news. But then it comes down to, at this kind of um, acceleration, do we risk you know, l- losing ground that we've made in terms of lowering inflation? And we know that the level of prices is still too high and much higher than 2019. And you mm-hmm. need to see continued improvements in wages outpacing inflation for consumers to feel better about the economy, although they've been spending at a phenomenal pace during the summer. And I think that's really important is we've got an economy that at least during the summer was running on really all cylinders. Yeah. I had sort of termed this past summer soft landing summer because you saw inflation coming down. You saw job growth coming down, but still staying at a strong and positive level. You saw retail sales coming down, but still saying positive. Now we have seen that turn around and you've got inflation overall picking up. You've got job gains picking back up over 300,000. You've got retail sales picking up faster um, than we've seen really almost at any time this year. What's your take on all that? 
you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather to see what's going on. Some of the gains we're seeing will be short-lived. I mean, for the first time in nine quarters, the housing market is going to add to growth in the third quarter. And that's because home builders were willing to offer incentives and, you know, do what we call mortgage buy-downs, give them cheaper mortgage rates for a few years to people so that they could get into a home and also go downscale on the houses they built. But now even builders are feeling the bite of higher rates. So some of these things will unwind and reverse as we get into the end of the year, but we're not talking about a collapse in growth. And we also saw excess savings that we amassed during the pandemic, which is not only more than we originally estimated, but income and savings over the last two years was greater. So we came into this year with more of a cushion than we thought. There are some things that are headwinds to growth, um, but the concept is, you know, one higher, stronger growth not only justifies higher rates, it's something we didn't have in the 2010s, right? Um, But it also does, you know, pose a risk of reigniting the cooling numbers of inflation. Now, I want to get into that a little bit because I think over the last month or so, the narrative on Wall Street had really been that as we move through this year and into 2024, there was this real risk that that recession that everyone predicted would happen in 2023 would just kind of be moved forwards into early 2024. And it seems like with the numbers that we've gotten lately, even that seems unlikely now. What are your thoughts on some of the biggest risks right now to the economy, if maybe that's not one of them? One of the biggest risks is, do we have a bumpy road down on inflation? That is going to happen. We know that's going to happen. But the other issue is, as we pivot from spending on goods into services, are we going to see stickier inflation? Are we going to see more service sector inflation? But, you know, it really is now the risk is the Fed is worried about, one, losing ground that they've gained on inflation, But two, the uncertainties that we face. Um, Our own government has gotten very dysfunctional. We've got higher deficits. You've got quantitative tightening. That's reductions in the Fed's bloated balance sheet. And we've been issuing more debt because both our spending has gone up and our tax revenues have fallen way short this year. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has talked a lot about the economy being out of whack. Uh, What are some things in this upcoming GDP report that could tell us the economy is coming back towards what the Fed wants to see? And what might tell us that the economy is still out of whack and maybe getting more out of whack? Well, the good news is it still will show inflation is cooling. And I think that is, you know, the underlying inflation pressures are cooling. That is the good news. But they're not at where the Fed wants it yet. They need quarters, not months of improvement in inflation. And I think that's important to remember because they know they've been head faked more than once on this and they don't want to be humbled again. But I think it's important to remember that the Fed is looking at also stronger growth, not only, um, you know, could cause some backsliding on inflation, but in and of itself, it, you know, this is something we haven't had in a long time. It justifies higher rates. What does the Fed look for in something like the GDP report to give them some insight on whether they do want to or whether they start to lean in the direction of raising rates again? Well, one of the biggest things is, you know, what do we set up for going forward? How much do we spend on services relative to goods is important in that composition of GDP. It's backward looking, but just the strength of the data in and of itself is an issue for the Fed because If we have a sustained increase in productivity growth, it's something we didn't have very robust in the 2010s. That also justifies higher growth and higher interest rates. Oh, man, too much productivity, Diane? 
Yeah, well, at least too for, much productivity for, for a moment in time. You know, I, I, I'm not <laughs> convinced this is going to stick around. But I mean, yeah, even with the acceleration in employment, it's still to have this much growth. You had to have a lot of productivity growth. Mm, gotcha. So all that said, what's the biggest question you're hoping to have answered by this week's GDP report? I don't know that I'll have a lot of questions answered. I'll probably have more questions to ask. How much of the strength that we see is going to be persistent? And I'll be looking at all the components and drilling down on where is the consumer actually spending? But what's more important is how strong does the final number come out? Because that in and of itself tells us something about the economy. That was KPMG Chief Economist Diane Swank. Fun fact, Diane's last name backwards is Nose, S-W-O-N-K-K-N-O-W-S. Fun, right? We'll be right back to talk about one of the best performing stocks in the world right now, Meta. Shares are up more than 150% year to date. But I'll explain why investors should be focused on the company's plans for handling the future of disinformation and fact-checking. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. One more thing before we get out of here. I want to talk about Meta, which is expected to report earnings on Wednesday. But one of the most interesting things about Meta is the way it is responding to X. And I'm not talking about the supposed cage match between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk that Zuckerberg now says isn't going to happen. Meta was formerly Facebook and X was formerly Twitter. And Twitter was a place where users could count on finding verified government officials, journalists, and other experts to follow for on-the-ground reliable information when earth-shaking conflicts unfolded like what we've seen in Israel and Gaza. My colleagues Alexa Norris and Sarah Needleman recently detailed the way that X is stumbling, fumbling, and, quote, failing, in the words of at least one researcher, when it comes to providing reliable information about the conflict. Recent examples have included old video clips posted to the site that were misleadingly repurposed, video game footage falsely presented as an attack by Hamas, and a fake White House press release. Threads from Instagram, remember Threads? Was supposed to provide an alternative. Parent company Meta's CEO Mark Zuckerberg positioned Threads as an answer to people who missed the old Twitter and wanted a place that offered some of the safeguards and protections against misinformation. So what happened? Sal Rodriguez covers Silicon Valley for the journal. He says that on X, a verification badge doesn't stand for much of anything anymore. The company removed verification badges from reporters and news organizations and now awards them to anyone who pays $8.99 a month. In theory, at least, this should be a problem for Musk. But now that Twitter is X, it's a private company, and it doesn't have to report anything to the public. In fact, they have responded to press requests with a poop emoji. We reached out to X for comment via email and got a response that said, busy now, please check back later. We also reached out to Meta, and they did not respond to our request for comment. 
So is this an opportunity for Threads? We may find out this week. Here's Sal. When Threads launched in July, it seemed like Mark Zuckerberg was posting an update on those numbers every few days, if not every couple of hours. You know, it was 5 million, 10 million, 100 million, 150 million. Since then, we haven't heard too much from him or the company on that front. They always give an update on how Facebook's daily and monthly active users are are doing every three months. They don't tend to break out Instagram, WhatsApp, and Threads as much. But I think that on threads, a, a breakout would be helpful for, for those that watch the company. Are people moving in mass to threads? The numbers matter. Analysts at Morningstar said threads could add between 2 and $3 billion to Meta's revenue every year between 2024 and 2027. Evercore ISI analysts estimate that threads could generate $8 billion in annual revenue by 2025. But that only happens if threads keeps delivering growth. How's that going? Many skeptical social media users want to know if there's a viable alternative out there to X, a place where they can share their thoughts with a large audience and interact and get feedback. Is that Threads? Meta will have the opportunity to tell us this week. And that's everything you need to know to take on the week for Sunday, October 22nd. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Valana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabowin. Stay smart.